0: On today's episode of the John Campy Show podcast, The Boys spin-off series Gen V has debuted on Rotten Tomatoes with a 100% rating. We're going to discuss that. Also, you ever wondered how much Vin Diesel made on all the different Fast and the Furious movies? Well, we actually have the numbers. We're going to go over that as well. Also, it's official. The writers actually go back to work today. We're going to go over that. Also, the writers' strike could end soon, as reports are coming out that the two sides of studios and the actors are going to meet, meet as early as next week. Maybe now with the writers having a deal, they can get that moving. Also, could the IATSE and writers' union deals, and maybe the upcoming SAG writers or SAG actors' deal, could that lead to a guarantee of having less seasons of a show? We're going to go over that. And also, Star Trek Four is apparently still very much officially in development and moving forward. We're going to talk about these things, and a whole bunch more. The John Campbell Show podcast starts right now. Well, greetings and salutations, everybody. Welcome to the Best damn Move Related Show on the Planet Earth, the John Campbell Show podcast, coming to you from right here in our quaint little studio, brought to you in part by our friends at Mint Mobile. I'm, of course, your host, John Campion. It is an awesome honor and privilege, as it is every day, to have you, our international friends, gather around as we talk about our favorite things in the world, movies and movie news, TV and streaming, all sorts of good things, not just giving you our opinions, but hopefully giving you some information and context so you guys can form your own well-informed opinions, whether they're the same or even a little bit different than ours. Uh, Joining me in studio, I got Ray Ora second day in a row that we got cookies in the office. Jonathan Voiko's here. Woo-woo. Writer, director, producer, Robert Meyer Burnett. I love Ray. And most importantly, of course, you guys are here. Thank you so much for making this show part of your day. And here's how the show is going to go. We're going to break it into a couple of parts. First of all, we're going to talk about all those topics that I listed off. And then in the last part of the show, we're going to take topics and questions from our beloved YouTube channel members. We have a great group of supporters around here, our YouTube channel members. And every day we ask them to send in some topics for us to discuss. And we get through just as many as we can. All right, guys, with that down, let's get started with this, shall we? The boys' spin-off show, Gen V, just debuted on Rotten Tomatoes with 100%. Now, we've seen that happen before, but there have been like six reviews or seven. Last I checked, there were over 25 reviews. Now, the page that uh, I currently have up here right now says 23 reviews, but as you can see right here, 100% after 23 reviews. Now, I wanted to go over just some of the reviews that we've got listed here. Uh, Screen Rant, is saying, Gen V is very entertaining. Uh, though some of the comic book aspects won't wow you, the story is engaging enough to keep you ready and wanting for more. The Daily Beast writes, energized by the same go-for-broke creativity, sharp social commentary, and pure R-rated sense of humor as its big TV brother, of course being the boys, it reconfirms that this franchise remains comic book genre's only consistent, consistently imaginative player. Uh, and hey, listen, it just goes on and on and on. Everybody's saying it's its not perfect. A lot of things say it's not perfect, but this is all the blood-soaked, gory, R-rated raunchiness you want with all the piercing, great social commentary at the same time with really good and enjoyable characters. Sounds a lot like The Boys. You know, and I remember when they were coming out with The Boys, I, I was excited because, well, number one, I'm a big Carl Urban fan. But I remember very quickly, I watched it and I thought, because the comics are really good, but I remember watching the first couple of episodes and thinking to myself, this is better than the source material. Like this this show is better than the comic. And I really like the comic. And it's just continued to bring this incredible momentum and this incredible energy, always being like completely juvenile while having some really advanced multi-layered, like social observations, human condition stories, and stuff like that, that are really quite profound. And Rob, I remember you said the same thing to me once that, you know, this show is actually better than the comics, which I think the first time I've ever heard you say that. <laughs> but where's your expectation been like for this spinoff about the, the college where these super powered beings go to get ready to be superheroes, Gen V, where have your expectations been? And what do you think about the reviews are saying?
1: Well, like you said, John, I mean, I'm a huge fan of The Boys. I think it continues to be one of the most creative shows on television. It also shows that the superhero genre has plenty of life into it. in it.
0: And a lot of areas it still has to explore. Unexplored
1: and the world building in the show is something I think that people don't pay enough attention to because it is a fascinating world. I mean, it skewers not just superheroes, but our corporate culture, you know, consumerism. There's so much going on in... Uh, the Boys, which makes it a joy to watch. It's a, I call it a full meal show. You feel like mm. you've, really, you've really got all the nutritious elements you need from, from a great <laughs> meal uh, in, in something like The Boys because it works on so many different levels. And I, you know, sometimes the danger is when you see a spin-off show that they might take a few elements in it, but the overall feeling that you get, uh, I think, to use an example, House of the Dragon. Turned out to be an incredible spin-off from Game of Thrones. Worked pretty much for me on every level. And I'm kind of, you know, judging by the original trailers and teasers we saw of Gen V, I was really excited. And so this is really good to hear. Because the trailers you could see that, okay... There's there. These writers are working at a high level. The same way they're gonna do. They're gonna do. It's it's Big Brother, as they say in this uh uh the, that article that you read. Uh, they're gonna do it proud. And I'm excited, dude. This is one of the things I'm most excited to see.
0: Yeah, I I am right there with you. You know, the interesting thing too is there are shows that are just empty calories, right? They're fun, but there's not not a lot of detail. Like Archer, one of my favorite animated things on TV. I love Archer. I find it hilarious, but it is admittedly. Empty calories, it's just good for a laugh, good for a chuckle, not much more. The boys, and hopefully by extension, Gen V, is on the surface has the appearance of another empty calories show, right? Right. Dick jokes and heads being sliced off, just empty calorie, fun, whatever. But the thing about the boys and hopefully Gen V is that I often walk away moved. Like I still remember in season one of The Boys, that one scene when when Maeve and Homelander go on that airplane to try to save the plane they, and Homelander's like, can't save the plane. And it's like, that was one of the most shaking emotional experiences I had watching TV that year. And they they had many episodes like that. So it has the appearance of empty calories with a lot of gooey nutritional value under the surface that I really enjoy. <laughs> uh,
1: uh, look, I agree. And also, you know, a character like Homelander on the surface is, you know, Homelander, but it, it's also a re-examination of the Superman character all the way back to the 1930s oh, and showing yeah. on how many different levels, what if there was a real Superman in the world and what if he wasn't brought up by the Kents? What could something like that? What, what, what would be the results of that? So in a way, it's kind of like almost an Elseworlds story. And I see it more, this is going to seem strange to some people, but I see The Boys as a DC Universe show. Like it's a mirror universe to the DC. It's a dark DC
0: kind of a thing, more so than, say, Marvel. Well, yeah, sure. You, looked at, you look at The Seven so the Justice League. Yeah, you you basically you have the deep as Aquaman. You had Black Noir was kind of their Batman. Mave is their Wonder Woman. Uh, the Homelander is their Superman. I mean, and and uh, A Train is their Flash. So right. yeah, it was absolutely a reflection of the, and, of the Justice yeah, League. Yeah, and you
1: look at it and you think, wow. And that's why it, it's not just a show that works on its own level. It's also a meta commentary on the last seventy years or eighty plus years of comic book superheroes in general, which is why it works.
0: All right, guys, with that down, let's move on to this next one, shall we? Vin Diesel makes a lot of money on the Fast and Furious movies. That's no surprise. But now, thanks to a couple of articles, we're starting to get a picture of exactly how much money <laughs> Vin Diesel's made. Now, listen, I am a big Vin Diesel fan. I, I, I am a 100%. I admit my bias. I really, really like Vin Diesel. Doesn't mean I like everything he does, but I'm a big fan of Vin Diesel. And I just thought this was really interesting. So Screen Rant, uh, you know, uh, one of the bigger uh, entertainment websites out there, uh, they ran an article and they basically were running down, if you were curious about how much money Vin Diesel has made uh, doing uh, the Fast and the Furious movies, well, we got the numbers, at least for most of the movies. Take a look at this. So on the first Fast and Furious movie, which I think is hot garbage, by the way. I I do not like the first Fast and Furious movie. Just a blatant point break ripoff. But uh, Vin Diesel got paid $2 million on that. On Too Fast, Too Furious, um, or as Jonathan would call it, Too Dirty, Too Dancing, (laughs) um, he did not appear. So no money for that. (laughs) On Fast and Furious, Tokyo Drift, which he only appeared in as in a cameo at the end, but apparently he... He agreed to appear as a cameo in the end in exchange to get the movie rights to the Riddick franchise. So I'd say that worked out pretty well for him. What he made on Fast and Furious, the fourth film, is undisclosed. So we we don't know for that. (laughs) On Fast Five, he made $15 On Fast Six, it's undisclosed. And then the most money he made was on Furious 7, where he made $47 million. And then in each of the ones since he made 20, Fate of the Furious in 2017, he made 20 million. F9, he made 20 million. Fast and Furious 10, he made 20 million. Hey, screen actors, if you wonder why some of your lower line actors don't get paid enough, maybe it's because guys are making $20 million on a movie for one person. But but hey, if anybody in the world deserves it, it's my boy Vin. He does it because these movies have made a lot of money. Rob, this is an ungodly amount of money. That, that you're making here. Um, I mean, 20 million per film on average. One film he made $47 million on. Uh, it's it's a lot of films. It's a It's a lot of money. But at the same time, you know, there's not many situations like this one where you have a franchise with literally 10 films in it. And you've got one guy who is, I mean, he doesn't pay the bills for the movie, but he's the face of the franchise, even though he wasn't in every single one of them. But it's been a big box office success for the most part. Ten films running over 22 years now this franchise has been going. And he's been the main face of it. I mean, if there ever was a template for somebody who should probably stand to reap a lot of reward... For that, it's probably Vin Diesel in this particular situation. I don't know. Uh, these numbers don't really surprise me. That $47 million he made for Furious 7 is kind of big. But anyway, you took a look at this. What do you think?
1: Well, like I'm sure that it looks to me, judging by these numbers, like his base salary was probably $20 million for Fast 9 and Fast 10, and then he had a percentage of grosses. So the reason I think he made a lot of money on Fast 7 was that's a $1.5 billion grossing movie. Right. So the reason I think he made forty-seven million was he probably got a base salary of twenty, and then made another twenty-seven million based on the earnings of that movie. So and it's, you, it's
0: it's it's interesting to note that since Fast Seven, the box office has continued has to decline. Gone down to, yeah, yeah,
1: but then. still, I mean, there's eleven movies if you if you count Hobbs and Shaw in this entire franchise. Who whoever would have thought that Rob Cohen's first movie, which was kind of a riff on a 50s movie, comes back, end point break, would lead to 11 films and how many? 22 I mean, years. I mean, that's insane. So, and the fact that Vin Diesel had to be coerced to come back, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting that in order to do his cameo in Tokyo Drift, he didn't get anything, but he got the rights to the Riddick franchise and they made, you know, there's now... Um, three Riddick movies. I think they're going to make a, maybe a fourth. Um, that was a good move. Like, it's like Vin Diesel's not a
0: stupid guy. You know it's funny? Back in 2003, it might have been 2002, 2003, when it became known that Vin Diesel was not coming back for Fast and the Furious 2. And the LA Times did an interview with him in which he said, I'm not going to come back and do the franchise anymore because I don't want to get pigeonholed only playing one certain type of character. Well, Vin... You did get pigeonholed only playing one certain type of character, whether it's Triple X, whether it's Riddick, whether it's this, and it damn well worked. <laughs> it worked beautifully. It worked to the tune of probably his net They're saying LA Times now saying his net worth is like $223 million or something like that. So I'd say, hey, I get it. You were right. You were going to get pigeonholed. But there was a lot of money in that pigeonhole, and you made out like a bandit. So I, th- I think it worked out okay for Not him. Not bad. Not bad at all. All right. Guys, with that down, let's move on to this topic, shall we? As of today, the striking screenwriters have been greenlit to go back to work. And as we speak, there are writers' rooms filling up, people working, a bunch of announcements that came out about Fallon and Kimmel and, and other, the night shows are now returning. Of course, once they announced that the screen actors or that the uh, Writers Guild had their deal, you know, Dancing with the Star said, oh, we are launching on our announced a release date, all that kind of stuff. Everything is now returning back to normal. Now, some people may be asking, wait a minute, wait a minute. We thought the deal wasn't official until the body, the writers themselves, all 11,000 of them vote to ratify the new deal. True. But the leadership of the WGA East and West are so confident that they're going to have no problem getting the writers to agree to the deal. They have officially sent out word to all their members that it's cool to go back to work. So the writers have returned. This comes to us from the National Post, who wrote the following. The Writers Guild of America strike is officially ending after 148 days following a tentative agreement on a new contract with the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers, the AMPTP, the board of the WGA West and Council of WGA East voted unanimously to lift the strike order as of 3.01 a.m. Eastern Standard Time Wednesday. The decision means writers can return to work today before the ratification vote to be held on October 2nd to October 9th. So the actual ratification vote is still a ways off. But Rob, I went over the the term sheet, they're going to accept this deal. Yeah, um, and it it end up being you know I'm once you start giving your point of this, I'm going to bring up uh, some of the points of the deal. But I mean, when they announce that they reached a tentative agreement, it's like great, but it could still be a week or two before they go back to work. But the leadership boards both said, no, no, enough. We've been off work long enough. Everybody, you can go back. We'll deal with the ratification vote uh, vote later. I think this was the right move. I I don't think there is the remotest possibility. Listen, all they need is 50% plus one uh, of the votes to say, yes, we accept this deal. There's no way they're getting under 96% approval on this. So I think it was probably cool for them to go back. Rob, it's been 148 days. Uh, and we can officially today say the writers are back to work. How important is this? What do you think about the move to go back before the ratification vote? And and how long do you think it's going to be before we start to feel the air going back into the lungs of the industry here?
1: Well, I think it's incredibly important. I mean, the thing is people forget – The entertainment business, whether you live in Georgia, whether you live in Los Angeles or Vancouver, Toronto, England, this, this is a huge business and it employs tens of thousands of people across many different disciplines. And this whole business has been ground to a halt and most of the people working in it are out of work. And if nothing else, I mean, the writers uh, have, have gone back to work. That doesn't mean production is, has started again because SAG is still on strike. But there's going to be a lot of people that were out of work that are back to work. Like you said, the the crews for late night talk shows and other things, daytime talk shows, good for them. It's great that people are going back to work and can pay their bills. It's it's a great hardship, and especially going into the holiday season. You know, this is hopefully will get things ratcheted up so people are are able to have a, a great Thanksgiving this year and a great Christmas with their families because they're working. And I think this can only be a good thing. And, you know, I'm really, I, I haven't, I've read the preliminary, uh, uh, sort of the bullet points, but I really want to read the whole deal. I'm very curious to read the whole thing. Um, and I, I'm curious because moving forward, I think this is a, this is a bellwether in terms of, of, uh, uh where we're going in the future with all creative industries and how they're going to deal with AI and, and what's going on with with the future of of any creative endeavor especially on a mass scale. So this was an important strike and I'm glad that the WJ held out and got what they wanted.
0: Well, they didn't get what they wanted.
1: Well, they, a compromise, yeah, 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 there least. was
0: there was a good compromise which actually here's the problem. I as I look over the the deal the compromise the deal makes so much sense that it just leaves me wondering why the hell this didn't get done 130 days ago. Now, let, let's bring this up here, uh, Jonathan, if you can. So here's some, I just want to highlight just a couple of the key things here, okay? Yeah. So like, I'm going to mostly look at the first thing and the last thing. Overall, the WGA was looking for a 17% increase over three years. 6% one year, 5%, 5%, right? They wanted a 17% increase, or 16% increase, I'm sorry. The... Studios were offering a 9% increase over three years. And ultimately what they landed on was 12.5. One wanted 16, one wanted nine. They landed on 12.5. Good compromise. They met in the middle. What I was really surprised to see, Rob, is how many of these points had this line in here. Agreed as of as of May 1st. Agreed as of... There's a lot of, lot of the terms in here the writers in the studios agreed on months ago. Yep. They were they were in full agreement on it. But at the end of the day, this is what the bottom line is. The writers say this the estimated value of the deal, the writer's proposal was gonna see it the, the new deal be worth four hundred and twenty-nine million per year. The studio's counter proposal was something that was gonna be worth eighty six million per year, and they ended somewhere right in the middle at a deal that's gonna be two hundred and thirty three million. So about 200 million less than what the writers wanted, about 150 million more than what the studios wanted to give, they met in the middle. They wanted sorry, 16%, they got 12.5. They wanted 429, the studio wanted 86, they landed at 233. It's a good deal. And and they addressed one of the most important things in this whole thing, they addressed the AI situation, which I think was absolutely vital for the writers yes. to get. Again, and I know I've been saying this a lot lately, I should just be happy that a deal got done. But Rob, as I look at this deal, and by the way, kudos and bravo to the negotiating committees of the AMPTP and the WGA because this is a good deal.
2: It this is
0: a good deal. I just have, when I see how good of a deal it is and how everybody compromised and everybody gave a little bit, I just don't know why they didn't reach this deal 130 days ago. That's that's the only thing. But is it, was there anything in the deal, even from just some of the... The, the bullet points that you heard that really stood out to you as being a big thing? To me, it was those final numbers, like that they came to that 233 million.
1: And also year. in terms of writer's rooms and things like that, I, I, I mean, I, I think a lot of the time people can be, the entertainment business does not play the long game. They're very short-sighted. Yeah. It's, and a lot of American business now is, you know, you think in, in fiscal quarters. I understand that. But we're now in a time where you need to start thinking down the road a ways because of the rapid change in technology and where we're going. So it was nice to see some of these things, the things that the writers wanted. Because look, man, uh, one of the things about all of my friends that are now successful writers in the f- television business Almost all of them started out in assistant capacities. They were writer's assistants. They were in the rooms. Sure, yeah. They were seeing how stories were broken. They were getting chances to contribute and then write. They worked their way up. And now they're executive producers and they're, they're running some of the most popular shows that people watching us now watch. And, and we need that. And I know that, that from a money, money standpoint, people would ask, well, what do we get from that? How does, how does having writer's assistance, how does that benefit us with your final product? Well, it's maybe not it's going to benefit you on this particular project, but you're going to need these people next year or two years from now or four years from now. They're the ones that are going to be carrying this industry forward. And the idea that you're not planting the seeds that are going to grow into the oak we need to keep this business going is silly. That's well, that, be that's why I, mean, of that's what the I said from the
0: beginning. I said a lot of, like, most of the, not all the things, but a lot of the things that the WGO was asking for, ironically, was going to be what was best for the studios anyway. Yes. And I don't understand why there was any pushback on that. Anyway, guys, a lot to digest here. I'm sure we're going to go into some of the finer points and details about the actual deal that got struck. Again, on I, I read over the four page thing that the WGA put out. I think it looks like a very fair deal for everybody involved. Everybody gave a little bit. You know, I always said. My, my real estate agent said, you know when you got a good deal when everybody's a little unhappy. Right. And I think everybody's a little unhappy, which, which, which means I think everybody should be happy. So there we go. All right, guys, listen. We still have to talk about What does this mean now for the actor strike going on? Also, could these new deals, the ones that Iotsi got last year, the new writers, could this actually unfortunately guarantee that we're going to see shorter and shorter numbers of seasons for TV shows? Star Trek 4 is officially still in development. But before we get to those things, we're going to take just a moment and thank one of the sponsors of today's episode of the John Camp Show podcast. The most comfortable shoes, honestly, that I've ever worn in my life. Our friends over at Vessi. Guys, we want to take a second to thank a sponsor of this video. Vessi. Now, like me, I'm sure a lot of you guys have heard of Vessi, the shoe that claims to be incredibly comfortable and waterproof on top of that. Well, these claims are really interesting to me because as a Canadian who walked around in a lot of snow and as somebody who likes to go camping and hiking with his wife on the weekends, there's nothing more uncomfortable and horrible than walking around in wet feet. So after receiving my first pair of Vessis and noticing how incredibly good looking the shoes are and how mind-boggling comfortable and flexible they are, the first thing I did was I took them into the backyard to put it to the supreme waterproof test and dipped my feet in my pool. Guys, my feet were bone dry and like 20 seconds after having them in the pool and I touched them, the shoes themselves were also bone dry. Guys, seriously, these shoes are stupidly comfortable. They look great and they absolutely lived up to the claim of being waterproof and keeping my feet dry. I absolutely love my Vessi shoes. So guys, if you want shoes that are good looking are ridiculously comfortable and on Top of all that waterproof, you need to head to Vessi.com slash Campia and get yourselves a pair today. Go to Vessi.com slash Campia and get shoes for your best summer yet. And thank you to our friends at Vessi for giving me the most wonderful experience wearing shoes ever. And of course, for sponsoring this episode of the John Campia Show podcast. All right, guys, with that down, let's talk about this, shall we? Now that the writer's strike is over... We could be seeing an end to the actor strike fairly soon as well, as reports have come out that the actors and the studios could set to meet in the next coming days before the end of next week. This comes to us from the folks over at Deadline who wrote the following. They said, as the WGA leadership and members move forward on the Scribe's tentative agreement with the studios and streamers, the 160,000-member strong actors union could be sitting down with the AMPTP, that's the studios, within days. Riding the momentum uh, that has hit Hollywood since the WGA and the Alliance of Motion Pictures and Television Producers struck a deal on September 24th, SAG-ACTRA, that's the actors, uh, leaders have penciled in meetings with the Carol Lombardi-led group by the end of next week, we hear. And that, again, comes to us from Deadline. Rob, we've been saying, as we've been looking at the developments happening with the Writers Guild, was that the double good news is Back, what we were saying last week was, if a deal gets done this weekend, and of course it did, but the double good news is not only is the writer strike over, hopefully whatever that deal is will lay a little bit of a framework that the studios and the actors can take. Obviously, some things don't apply, but a number of principles do apply, that they can use that as a framework and a launching point for getting their deal done. I think, Rob, that... Listen, there's a lot of actors who are fed up with not acting. There's a lot of shareholders with studios that are fed up with stuff not being in, in uh, development. We've got positive momentum. The WGA strike is settled. I actually think within two weeks, we're going to get a deal. I, I Nobody else is telling me that. I'm just saying, I feel like with the momentum going with the fact that this, the actors saying we're going to meet within the next couple of days, I think there's momentum. I think that everybody wants to capitalize on this. And I think we're going to get a deal with the next two weeks. And I think that this... Business is going to get back into motion again. Am I beingly, being overly optimistic? Am I getting too happy about the WGA deal? What, what do you think is going to happen here?
1: No, I, I don't think you're being too optimistic. I mean, I think now that the DGA and the WGA are leading the way, that SAG needs to step up and, and, and people need to listen to what their needs are. And I think a deal will get made because, you know, everybody, we're still not back to work. The writers might be writing, but that's, you know, a writer's room. What about your entire production crew? You know, everybody, like Gavin Newsom talks about businesses going bust. It's not just the people that work on productions. It's all the other businesses that services the production. Yeah. I mean, everything from catering to expendables to, you know, lumber companies to build sets.
0: Services. Everything.
1: All that stuff. stuff, The camera, the the rental houses. I mean, there's so many different businesses, especially in places like, like Georgia and here in California, that need. We need these businesses to go back to work. So there's a real, I think, incentive to get this business, which is a huge export business for the United States, for the rest of the world, to get cooking.
0: You know, we were saying last week that, and I was saying earlier this week, that it's not a coincidence that for the first time that the WGA and the studios actually negotiated five days in a row, they actually got in a room for five days in a row. It's not a coincidence they did that and a deal got done. Right. That's what needs to happen with Fran Drescher and Bob Iger and Ted Sandros and David Zaslav. They need to get in a room, close the door and someone on the outside, I don't care if it's the governor of California or whatever. Someone needs to be on the outside the door and says, we're not opening this door until you slip a signed deal under the door on a piece of paper and say, you guys have come to a conclusion because Rob, here's the thing. I was talking about this the other day, that writer strike lasts 148 days. Do you know how many days they actually met in the same room together over those 148? Not very many. Nine. That includes the five days that they did marathon meetings with and finally came to a deal. If these guys can do the same thing, I feel very good that we could get an actor's deal done. Hopefully it'd be as fair and as down the line as the writer's one was. And we could hear about Deadpool three going back into production, like within two weeks, which would be maybe again, maybe that's overly optimistic. But I I choose to be the optimistic guy this week. Yeah. I'm not going to be the wet blanket guy today. I am the optimistic, everything's going to be fine guy today. So that's what I'm holding on to. All right, guys. With that down, let's move on to this, shall we? You know, we got the WGA deal is now done. IATSE got their deal done uh, a little over a year ago. but Actually, almost two years ago now. But the question is, could these deals... One of the unfortunate side effects of these deals, and we're all thrilled that the deals are getting done, but could one of the unfortunate side effects be that television shows are doomed to have fewer and fewer seasons? We did a story recently that, you know, the original showrunner of the Netflix Daredevil series came out and basically said, yeah, you know, the whole reason that Disney isn't just doing Daredevil season four and instead is creating a new show is because in union contracts, specifically IOTC, once a show gets into a fourth season, everybody's, all the crew members, everybody's pay goes way up. And we've seen that things like Netflix and stuff like that, they kill shows after two seasons, sometimes three seasons at most is what they'll give some shows. So could these deals and one of the repercussions be that we are doomed to have shorter and shorter seasons moving on. And that is the topic of today's mint mobile hotline question of the day. Listen, guys, if you got a question or a comment for the show and you'd love to hear your voice on our show, go ahead and call our hotline anytime 24-7 at 951-268-4259. And our Mint Mobile hotline question today is exactly about that. Are these union deals going to shorten seasons? Check it out. Hey, Johnny Carew, Zach, the bartender from Ohio, calling about the IOC contracts that mandate pay raises after season four. I was wondering, actually, in relation to Netflix, Netflix is renowned for only going up to about three seasons at most of the average show, no matter how popular it is. So I am wondering if this is part of the reason, perhaps, that we only get to season two or three of a lot of Netflix content. Anyways, love to hear your thoughts. Thanks for taking my question and don't have a good day. Have a great one. (laughs) All right. Thanks a lot for calling that in. And listen, the, the topic of Netflix's infamously short runs on their shows there are very, very few exceptions, Stranger Things being one of them. Uh, did it just have season five or is it about to have season it's five? It's going to have season it's gonna five. It's going to have season five, right? Which for a Netflix series is like freaking Supernatural having 15 seasons on regular cable television. I mean, that that's huge. The vast, 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 vast majority of shows on Netflix don't last more than two or three seasons. And then they kill them. One of the reasons we've discussed about that in the past is because... Number one, Netflix doesn't care if people watch shows. Netflix cares if shows get people to sign up and subscribe to Netflix. And once somebody's signed up and subscribed to Netflix, doing season five or six isn't getting more people signing up. So it doesn't matter how many people watch it. So they cancel those shows. And we've seen a lot of high profile ones go. But even back in the cable television days, well, back in the cable television, cable television is still happening. But, you know, there was a, a documentary called Showrunner. And one of the things they talked about is after the third season, power dynamics completely shift. The stars and actors get a lot more power, more money gets rolled up and all that kind of stuff. And that adds to the circumstances that it de-incentivizes like networks to want to have a show run longer, right? It's, it's actually to their benefit to make sure, sh- make sure that shows only run one, two or three seasons. You know, because after that, we're not making any more money off of it, but it's costing us a lot more money. And I think for a deal like IOTC, which says, like, once a show goes into season four, big pay increases have to happen. And I think that's fair. If you're going to stay dedicated and working on a show for that long and a show is that run, long running, yeah, those big pay increases should be in there. And maybe something like that is going to be reflected in the WGA deal as well. But as much as that's a good thing overall, one of the unfortunate side effects is probably, Rob, going to be that you know shows that last seven or eight seasons, those are going to go the way of the dodo bird. I mean, those, I think those are going to disappear and become extremely, extremely rare. And the new reality is going to be the environment that's been set up now is just incentivizing these streamers again to keep seasons of even great shows very, very short. And maybe one of the good things about that is ending season short means they're having to work on bringing new great shows to thing. Like I I can cry and complain. And I have cried and complained that winning time got canceled after two seasons, but we got winning time, right? We had two great seasons of winning time. And I hate that it ended, but it means they're working on something else to bring. So I don't know, Rob, the question being posed here is could these deals and the, the environment we have now, Are we looking at a future where it's just a foregone conclusion that shows are going to have shorter and shorter runs? What do you think?
1: Yes, 100%. Because, you know, if a show is a hit show on a network, John, that means that the economic model was you can now charge advertisers more money based on the ratings. They're getting more eyeballs. You pay more money for those advertising dollars, which made the shows more profitable. That was the whole point. That economic model and part of the whole idea of residuals in the Writers Guild strike is that streamers, that economic model is not correct for it's streamers. It's not applicable anymore. It's not applicable at all. So uh, uh, Netflix, they basically, when they make a show, if Netflix is a supermarket, the show they make is the can of peas on on a shelf. And, and the fact is, going beyond three seasons, I mean, unless it's a monstrously huge worldwide hit like Stranger Things was. Stranger Things, even up to season five, which I was surprised because it gets way more expensive every year, that show's not a cheap show to make. So they figured it was worth enough for them to, to either they retain subscribers or they do get enough more subscribers from the show that... People are on the Stranger Things bandwagon. That's the thing I,
0: about Stranger. What makes Stranger Things so rare, though, is yeah. the fact that it's one of these extremely rare situations where the show's become a part of the pop cultural zeitgeist. Yeah. It's become a part of the fabric of our pop culture. You would have people and leaving. It's one of those very few shows that I think, even in season three and four and five, it's actually attracting new subscribers. Very, very few shows can do that. But I think you're right. Stranger Things is one I, of those I, shows. They,
1: they are. And if you look at things like like the Eric McCormack produced science fiction show Travelers that came out of Canada. By
0: the way, Eric McCormack, star of your movie that you directed,
1: <laughs> a Free Enterprise. Shout out to Eric, but his show Travelers would which I loved. Uh, Netflix picked it up entirely and did a third season designated survivor. That was on NBC, the key for Sutherland move uh, show. They did a third season with that. I honestly think John that the reason it's not just economics, which is plays into it, but you have three seasons. It's almost like having like a trilogy and, and a, uh, you can, if you can finish off a network show that might've only had two seasons and make it satisfying, people will come back to that show and watch it again because it's a full meal of a story. So I do think that that's also an attractive, uh, it's an attractive model. It's got season one's a beginning, season two's a middle, and season is an ending. And that's fulfilling for viewers. So a show like Designated Survivor, the, the peas the, the that are on the shelf in the supermarket, can always be taken down. And people will find these shows for years to come and find them to be satisfying. That's why I think that, that that it's not just economic, but it also makes sense from their streaming perspective. It's enough of a bingeable show that it, may, it has value years beyond
0: uh, when it was made. There's not an intimidating prospect because, you know, sometimes people tell me about these older shows that I never watched, and I think, okay, so watch that. Nine seasons and 172 episodes, huh? And that can be a little bit daunting, whereas three seasons of a show on Netflix can be... What, eight episodes a season, you know, 24 episodes? It's like, all right, I, c- I can do that. So maybe it gives them a little bit of longer legs and lo- makes them a little bit more evergreen. Absolutely. Although I do want nine seasons of winning time. I'm not going to lie about that. <laughs> all right, guys, with that down, uh, let's move on to this, shall we? Star Trek 4, the Chris Pine-led Star Trek franchise, which we all, me included, thought was dead despite everything that was being told. Apparently, it Paramount is still very serious about it, and it is still up and running and in development. So saith the writer of the screenplay for it. Her name is Lindsay Anderson Beer. She wrote the original draft of the first screenplay. Now, she's now directing a film coming out called Pet Cemetery Bloodline, which looks like a movie I am very excited to not watch. Um <laughs> but she was asked recently whether this new Star Trek movie oh, has, has, been, has been, I'm sorry that the last one was terrible. I didn't you think the trailer for this put, one look good. You try to slip that in there. Like, <laughs> but um, they were asking her, boy, so is that one that you worked on? Is that dead? And she said, this, this is coming from the folks that are coming soon. Uh, Asking her if it was still on, she says, it is. It is still on the track, she said. I love that project. And it was another one that I had to hop off to go and direct this movie, talking about um, Pet Cemetery Bloodline. And that was a hard thing to do. But I love that everybody involved – I love everybody involved with that project. However, it's currently unclear if Beer had already left Star Trek IV in order to shift her focus – on directing Pet Cemetery Bloodlines, or if her work on the project is temporarily on hold while the Paramount while Paramount continues its search for a new director. Because if you remember, WandaVision director Matt Shackman, I believe, was lined up to direct it. <laughs> that guy's now doing a little film called Fantastic Four, uh, at least so they say, so good on him. So they're looking for a new director. Um, look, we have a difference of opinion in this room. Um, is there Really? I really like this particular Star Trek franchise. Number two was shaky. Well, number two, even I admit that. Number two was shaky. I don't think it's as bad as some people make it out to be, but I thought it was shaky. But I spent, this is one of those, the first one, Rob, and you, you weren't around yet, but the first one was during my movie blog days and even to my early AMC days, is one that I shit on. So much when they announced it was coming, it's going to be garbage. This is a dead franchise. That The people who follow this Star Trek franchise are literally, not figuratively, literally dying off. They're not generating new fans. This franchise is dead. Nobody cares about this movie. This movie is going to be awful. Then I went to go see that first one with Chris Pine. And while it is no Star Trek The Voyage Home, I really liked it. I really and I I had to eat my words. I I liked it very very much. I loved the cast. Um, I loved freaking uh, dude as Spock, uh, the guy from uh, Zachary what I,
2: Kinto? What's
0: that? Yeah. What's up? Yeah, him. I I loved him. I loved him in Heroes. Uh, I I thought Chris Pine did a wonderful job of being Captain Kirk without trying to do a William Shatner impersonation, and I thought that was key and important. Like some of the other characters could do that, but it was important that they not. Uh, the second one was the second one. I love the third one. It tanked financially, but I really, that's the one Simon Pegg wrote. Uh, I really did quite enjoy that third one. And then, Rob, they were talking for a while that the idea for the fourth one was going to be Chris Hemsworth, who was in the first one, played uh, George, George Kirk, Kirk. Uh, Captain Kirk's dad. That they were going to do a father-son one. I think that one's kind of been brushed away. Then we heard things about maybe a Quentin Tarantino was going to do one. Got kind of excited about that. That seems to be gone. Especially coming off the third one, which I thought was really good. And we covered this one. at They they did a screening of this one at Comic-Con the year it came out. And we loved it. But I would love for this movie to come back. They seem to be on a little bit of a roll over at Paramount. Uh, They've had a lot of success with Strange New Worlds. Uh, eh, mixed success with, let's say, uh, uh, not Discovery. Uh, or is it Discovery? Discovery. It is Discovery, right. right. I keep getting that good. It's coming it, back Enterprise. for that fifth season. It's final season. <laughs> for its final season. Uh, but more people watch that Below Deck show than I thought. I, I don't watch the Below Deck show. Lower Decks. Lower Decks, thank you. But I, like I said, I don't watch it. But I, I've been hearing—I don't think the trailers look good or anything like that. But I've been hearing from people, I think, including you, that actually watched a little bit of it and said it was actually better than I thought it would be. So hey, hey, whatever. I'm looking forward to this, Rob. You are super excited about this news—the the potential of a Star Trek Four. He's beaming. Do you, what do you th- what do you think about the comments here? And, and, and yeah. honestly, yeah, line, there you go. <laughs> do you actually think it's going to happen? That's the biggest question.
1: Well, uh, you know what's interesting, just from a business standpoint. Um, you know, Star Trek Force has had more people involved with him than the flash did. I mean, there has been so many, if not,
0: then it's th- close. There's been so
1: many directors. And I think let's just talk about it from a business perspective. You know, they looked at Star Trek to revive that franchise. Paramount wanted it to do Transformers numbers, maybe even get up to being a billion-dollar grossing franchise. Which was
0: unrealistic. Unrealistic.
1: And another problem, I think, they spent too much money on these movies from the get-go. Star Trek 09, $175 million. That doesn't even include marketing. And they didn't make back even half a billion dollars. It it eked over, I think, 400-something million. So the returns on these movies, the return on investment has not been nearly as great as they hoped. Because they've spent uh, Into Darkness costs more money, and then as you pointed out, Star Trek Beyond didn't make any money, really. Um, And I think that's the real problem. They're they're trying to work the numbers from these three previous movies and the cast in these films. Look at Zoe Saldana. Look what happened in two thousand nine to her Avatar. Yeah, you know, and then she has the Guardians of the Galaxy movies, and she's a leading lady. I mean, she did a great series on streaming lioness lioness now i mean taylor sheridan the, the the cast has done very very well since these movies came out which has made them more expensive i think the problem with star trek 4 is simply one of money mm. and i think all they need to do is figure out you know if and i'll tell you something else john they should instead of looking at movies like star trek i mean uh, star wars to emulate look at a movie like oppenheimer Oppenheimer is the kind of movie and I'm not saying people are going to be like what? I'm thinking a thoughtful movie. If you made a, a Star Trek movie about the creation of a doomsday weapon. There was an episode called the Doomsday Machine and you made it intellectually stimulating, you could bring your costs down. You would have Well, they have to did spend that a little bit with the Genesis device, right? Something like. Yeah, but I'm not saying uh, uh, emulate it. I'm right, just right, saying right. that they don't the, the uh, Star Trek 2 in 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 1982 dollars was like 11 million and it made so in the 70 millions of dollars. That's a lot of money. If they were able to bring down the price of what these movies cost,
0: they, I think, would have a very viable franchise. Now, with everything that's been going on, though, do you think, you know, it's been a while. It's been a while since that third Star Trek film. The writer is saying that, yeah, it's still on track and they're still going to do it. Is it actually going to happen, do you think? Uh,
1: You know what? To tell you the truth, I don't think so because there's so much Star Trek now. They've produced, Mm. you have Star Trek Picard just finished, you have Lower Decks, you have Discovery, you have Strange New Worlds. They're talking about doing the Michelle Yeoh Section 31 movie for streaming. They've got uh, the Starfleet Academy series they want to make. So I think that there's an oversaturation of Star Trek product, and the Star Trek audience isn't getting bigger. So I don't think it's going to happen.
0: You pointed out a big factor, too, is that when you look at the cast of it, Chris Pine, who, I, by the way, I know I'm harping on this all the time, guys. If you did not watch the Dungeons and Dragons movie with Chris Pine, you got to watch that Dungeons and Dragons. It's a hell of a lot of fun. Uh, Zoe Saldana, uh, uh, Gerard, Gerard, not Gerard Butler, uh, Carl, Carl Urban, Urban. You know, you're right. I mean, these are actors whose profiles have done nothing but go up uh, since that time.
1: Although and, Chris Pine did direct the Pool Man, which is not getting, which good is notices. not getting, yeah, but.
0: <laughs> Yeah, maybe his uh, maybe his touch as a director is not, maybe he won't be directing Star Trek 4. But also I think like, to your point about they need to reel the budget down a bit. We got the creator coming out, that, which is made for $80 million. But I also think they need to be a little bit more realistic because you're right, when they came out and had expectations it was going to do Transformers numbers. And look, I'm not looking to spark a Star Wars versus Star Trek debate here. I think most Star Trek fans of whatever generation can agree with what I'm going to say. Star Trek isn't Star Wars. No, it it does not have the same fan base. It just doesn't have that same size. I think if any paramount exec went into it thinking this Star Trek movie is going to make $1.2 billion, then I think you were crazy to start. Yeah, That can't be your, your watermark for success in a movie like this. And if they can reel in that budget and keep that cast, they could be talking about something that could potentially be profitable for them if Uh, done right.
1: Dude, I agree. If Star Trek 09 was a $125 million movie, Mm. it would have been the most expensive Star Trek movie and it would have been profitable.
0: Yeah, They got to figure out a way to do it. Again, look at movies like The Creator. All right, guys. With that all down, we are now going to go over and start taking some questions and topics from our YouTube channel members. But before we do that, we're going to take just a quick moment and thank a sponsor of today's episode of the John Camp Show podcast, my mobile service provider, and they should be yours mint mobile guys we want to take a second to thank a sponsor of today's video Dot com slash campia cut your wireless bill to just 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash campia <laughs> deep balls and uh <laughs> sorry there was a conversation before we came back thank you to our mint mobile's gonna love that thank you to our <laughs> friends at mint mobile for being a sponsor of today's episode of the john campia show podcast All right, guys, with that all down, we like to every day end the show by going over and taking topics from our YouTube channel members. We get through as many as we can every day. Uh, So, Jonathan, what do we got up first? We have, let me stream up a little, or slide up a bit, CJ Rebirth. Um, A
2: sequel I wish they'd have been able to write is a sequel for the Get Smart uh, with Steve Carell, Anne
0: Hathaway, The Rock, Alan Arkin, one of my favorite comedies. I didn't think it was great, but I enjoyed it. I had fun with it. Like it was before my time, but I grew up with reruns of get smart playing on the local cable channels when I would be home for lunch uh, from school. I used to love, so I used to love that old show. I thought Steve Carell was perfect casting to play it. Anne Hathaway is always perfect. And it was a great role for the rock too. in it, I mean, I don't think it made the money to justify sequel but that would have been a fun one, Rob. Did you see Get Smart? Oh yeah. What, what do you think about it? I thought it
1: was fun too, but it didn't make enough money to justify no. a sequel. I don't think it was as funny as it should have been because the show itself was so hilarious. Yeah. And but I, I did a pre, I thought look I thought Steve Carell was great casting. That's uh. You true. know, and Anne Hathaway is Agent Ninety Nine. Oh. You know, two hundred thirty million is how much it made. Yeah, that's
0: that's not bad, but Just not enough that, to that make a franchise of out of it. You know, especially with all those stars. All right, what's next?
2: Uh, Fan, Jack, you're right. Uh, not thrilled that streaming numbers were negotiated to be given out uh, to the guilds, but only under confidential agreement and only high-budget streaming programs as
0: well. Very limited, as an outsider looking in. I I get it. I get it. But and would I like to see those numbers? Yes. But here's and this is just the truth. It's none of our business unless you're a public shareholder in those companies. We have no right to see those numbers. Would I like to see the numbers? Absolutely, I would. Now, that's why we've got some third-party entities like Samba TV and stuff like that that do monitor. But I would love to see the streamers own data and get that. And and by the way, even the guilds only have limited access to those numbers for the purposes of what they're going to be doing. But still, would I like to see it? I'm right there with you. Can't be upset that they're not giving it to us, though, because we don't have any right to see those numbers. It's private information, and unless they go, uh, we're part of an ownership of a public IP, it's going to probably stay that way, unfortunately. All right, what's next? Uh,
2: Disney Freak Rides. Hey, guys, super excited for tonight as I'm going to my local AMC to watch the first two episodes of Gen V. Oh. Did you guys get your free tickets to this event that Amazon is putting
0: on? Apparently I didn't not. even know they were doing that, or I 100% would have done that. Free tickets. Yeah. It was funny, Ann and I like we know we're doing tomorrow. We're seeing uh, uh, the creator tomorrow. On Friday, Anne's going to Disneyland with some of our friends because I don't go to Disneyland anymore. <laughs> um, so yeah, that's, Every so, time. Huh? I definitely, definitely would have gone to see that tonight, but I didn't know. Good, Make sure you write in. Let us know what you think about it when you see the first two episodes. They air Friday, right? That's when the right, first episode's right. officially air? Yeah. That is so cool that you could go see that tonight. I would have totally gone if I knew what was happening. All right, what's next?
2: Jai C S C writes, are there any characters from movies or TV series that you uh, really disliked in their first appearance, but then became one of your favorite later on?
0: Yes. Yeah, there, there have been several in a lot of movies that or shows that they start off not being so great. I mean, look, one of my favorite shows, uh, Supernatural. I really, I thought Crowley was a clown of a character at first. By the end of that show, Crowley was one of my all-time favorite characters on television. I love that one. Now again, I'd have to I have to think of more. I feel like recently there was there was something we were talking about where I was like, I didn't like that character at first, but my God, by the end of, oh, I know what it was. It was, I think, it was was it Star Trek Discovery, or one of the other Star Treks? They introduced this Helm's character, and. This blonde character at the beginning of the season, no, it, no, it wasn't a Star Trek. It was, uh, um, uh, Family Guy's Star Trek ripoff show. Oh, oh, oh yeah, uh, the, the, Orville. Orville. the Orville. The Orville, yeah. right? The Orville. This the last season of the Orvilles are actually a really good example of it. they brought in in the final season at the very beginning this new hot blonde girl that's the new member of the crew. It's like oh, Seth
1: course, and new girlfriend. No, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> I would have. The thing if if you didn't say I'm I'm kidding, I would have totally bought it. But I remember they brought her in and I thought this is a really lame character. (laughs) But then they started setting up her story for the season and she developed, uh, she had to work with uh, the droid. I can't remember what the droid's name is, but she had to work with the droid. And then at the end, by the end of the season, she actually, as a part, as a total summation of her whole story arc, she sacrifices herself for these people she hated for these entities and these beings she hated, she actually ends up sacrificing herself for them. And I remember when that happened, I remember thinking, this is the biggest turnaround I've ever felt with a single character in a single season of TV because I really didn't like the character the first two episodes were there. By the end of it, I just thought that character arc, that storyline was maybe the best thing they ever did on the Orville. I I loved it. Did you ever show or something like that where you didn't like a character and then really warmed up?
1: Yeah, it's funny because I was thinking about a science fiction show, older science fiction show from the 90s, Babylon 5. Andreas Katsulas played a character named Jakar kind of a Oh yeah, lit, yeah yeah. And I hated that character, like annoying, stupid. I hated it during the pilot, the gathering movie. I was like, what? I did, uh, over the course of that show, that character, the nobility uh, Katsulas who who played Tomalak in Star Trek the Next Generation, what that actor imbued all underneath makeup that character with was astonishing. And by the time you get into like the third and fourth season of Babylon 5, that character is one of the most noble, amazing characters in all of televised science fiction.
2: All right. What's next? Car. Alan says, Happy Wednesday, uh, Can't Be a Crew. I really liked your review of the Batman. I rewatched it the other day and I found it delightful. How much you guys enjoyed the movie? Also, that Batmobile scene
0: was sick. Well, I'm a little biased over here. <laughs> I, I still can't believe how much. Now, look, I still feel that the movie was too long. I think the, what the only flaw I came out of that movie with was, you could have scalped ten to fifteen minutes out of that movie, would have felt even tighter, better paced, all that kind of stuff. It was a very very long movie, but other than that, it it showed the potential of what this Batman character can be, right? Because, and again, I really do like the Christopher Nolan and Matt Reeves approach to Batman, which Batman is unique in his universe. There's no Amazonians with magical golden lassos. There's no godlike beings shooting lasers out of their eyes. It's the story about this person who went through unspeakable trauma as a child where they essentially died and a whole new personality was born and they see themselves as the living embodiment of vengeance on those who would create, commit injustice uh, on the people there. And they really went with a much more grounded approach. That's not to say that I don't like, you know, the Ben Affleck, because uh, Ben Affleck's my favorite Batman. But Ben Affleck, who is this regular mortal guy, also got a big kick out of the Batman who's the only regular mortal guy. And all the other godlike beings fear him. Like, like to me, that's that's a very cool approach, too. But I really love that ground thing. And I just loved, love, love that Batman. That Matt Reeves' Batman was just so great. And I cannot wait for them to do a second one if it ever happens. All right. What's next?
2: Kayak says, first Fast X, then Meg 2, now The Expendables 4. What a year for Jason, St- <laughs> Jason Statham, paycheck-wise. Uh, Operation Fortune is the only one of his
0: recent movies that I haven't seen yet. Is it any good? It's the only one you should have seen. I quite enjoyed Operation Fortune, as a matter of fact. And I, I, I thought the marketing was terrible. I, I almost didn't go see it. Uh, but it is absolutely delightful. Because not only is Jason Statham in it, Hugh Grant is baller in it. Hugh Grant is great. Aubrey Plaza is wonderful in it. Josh Hartnett is actually surprisingly really good in it. Ain't nobody went to go see this movie. Like nobody. I was there on opening night for it. There had to be 15 other people in the theater. Nobody went to go see it. And it's not great. It's not Guy Ritchie's best, but it's a really enjoyable Guy Ritchie style kind of movie that I had a lot of fun with. It's, it's Jason Statham's best movie in years. I know that's not saying a lot, and I love Jason, but yeah, best movie <laughs> in years. All right,
2: what's next, uh, Mr. Hank Dunn? Well, you'll be pleased to find out. Hey, JC and the Sunshine Crew, John. I fully understand not doing full reviews of movies that are past the opening weekend, but why don't you do out of the theater reactions? I imagine those don't take long at all. We do.
0: Well, do, but like that's the thing. If if I don't see a movie, um, by its opening weekend. Because, you know, some weekends Ann and I are out of town or we're, there are other movies opening that we do. Like, for whatever reason, I, if I can't see a movie opening weekend, I won't review it because there's no point. And even an out-of-theater review, there's no point doing an out-of-theater reaction, you know, when everybody who's already interested in the movie has already seen it. Like, it opened six days ago. Anybody who Most people who wanted to see this movie would have seen it already. There's no real point doing an out-of-theater re- reaction. So, yeah, I I have always back... To my movie blog days, I have a personal rule. If I can't do a sort of review or reaction to something within 48 hours of it coming out, there's no point in me doing it. I still believe in that, and I'm probably still going to stick to that. All right, what's next? CJ Rebirth writes, I'm looking forward to seeing more of Ariana DeBose in uh, Disney's
2: Wish in a couple months. Like Rachel Zegler, I was introduced to Ari in West Side Story, and I
0: love seeing her win that Oscar for her performance. She was so good in that. So good. I mean, really, I, I personally felt that West Side Story was the best movie of the year, the year it came out. I personally thought that should have won Best Picture. But um, she was a revelation in that. I, I never really had heard of her or really seen her in anything. And everybody was talking a lot about, you know, other cast. And everybody in the movie is fantastic. But she stole that movie in a supporting role and fully deserved that Academy Award. And isn't she in uh, Craven the Hunter as well? I believe she's going to be in Craven the Hunter Let me check. which is one of the reasons why I'm really excited to see her. So one hundred percent what do you what do you think of her?
1: I loved I mean, I loved her on West Side Story. Yeah, she she's was so good. She was so good. I mean, she's such an electrifying performer. I mean you can't take your eyes off right. her when she's on screen.
0: Hey yeah, I just heard that's going to be uh Damn. in uh Craven the Hunter very Calypso. very excited about she that She plays Calypso. Yeah, that's right. And Rachel Ziegler in, in West Side Story, I mean, I, there's a bunch of people whining and crying about her right now. Whatever, what? fuck off. What? I don't care. But she is so good in West Side Story and her voice is purely angelic. Oh, yeah. Um, whether or not she's going to be able to, like, was that a one-hit wonder? Is she going to be able to turn in a performance like that every single time? Don't know. We haven't seen her in enough stuff yet. Uh, but, uh, but, but Du Bois is 100% the real deal. That that girl's got she's She's a female performer in this industry who's got Dwayne The Rock Johnson like kind of on-screen magnetism. You know what I mean? She's just phenomenal. Love her so much. All right, we got time for like two more. What's next? Okay. Uh, sorry, let's lead with this one first and then we'll go to the next one.
2: Jeff Rigo. Jeff Rigo. Jeff Rigo. Uh, horror Nights. I went to Horror Nights on Saturday, and man, what a disaster! I recommend for people to invest in the VIP pass, or else you'll wait two to three hours in line for a maze. I learned my lesson for next time.
0: Now, what Chef Rigo is, just, is talking about is the extremely popular Universal Studios Hollywood uh, Halloween Horror Nights that they do every year. They run it for about a month every year, and it is pretty wonderful. It's a it's a pretty cool experience going there because the whole park is transformed. They have performers running all the way. You can just be walking down the sidewalk and all of a sudden, some dude in a freaky Halloween costume mask jumps up with you with a running chainsaw or something and makes you jump out of your skin. And they have, of course, the the mazes, the horror mazes. The first time we went to it, in about eight hours of being there, we got through three mazes. And it was fun and we had a great time. But if you can't afford it, I would say save up and get the express VIP because instead of waiting in line for a maze for an hour and a half or two hours, you'll wait in line for a maze for about 10 minutes. And we, so the next year that we went back, we made sure we splurged and got the the VIP stuff, you know, you know, didn't eat out for, for a couple of weeks, saved up our, our pennies and, and got that. And instead of getting through three mazes, we got through all of them twice. I mean, it was just, it's a completely different experience when you go either on the regular night or go as, with a regular pass or go with the uh, the Express VIP pass. Again, it's not a cheap night. It's probably going to run you about what you would pay if you're going to go to a Lakers game. Um, oh, but if you can, I'd say get it because it does make it a different experience altogether.
2: All right, last one. What's next? Okay, last one. And I'm going to run credits on our fabulous members here as I read this. But uh We have Jay Superboy who writes, hey, John, do you think the actors will get a similar contract to the writers or will it be completely different?
0: Well, I mean, in a number of ways, it has to be completely different, right? Because a couple of the issues that were important to the writers were things like minimum writer's room size. Well, there's no equivalent uh, factor for that for the actors. Uh, Minimum length of, of writer's contracts, well, there's no way the studios are going to say, hey, we only need this actor on set for three days, but we'll guarantee them a minimum of 12 days pay. No, they're not going to do that. So that's not really applicable either. Percentage of, of wage increases. I think that's going to be the most similar mandate and probably the most important one to SAG. Um, I don't know how much of a percentage, you know, the Writers Guild was initially asking for a 16% increase. Studios wanted to give them nine. They ended up at 125 I don't know what the starting number is for SAG of what they're asking for for uh, basic minimum wages increases to coincide with inflation and all that kind of stuff. Don't know what that is. I suspect the one thing that will perform – the two things that will perform be a framework is, number one, the raise increases, and number two, how they've decided to model residuals. That will probably help a great deal in getting the deal done, which is why I think it's probably going to be done in the next two weeks. Rob, how do you feel about that? I think
1: you're probably right because you know with the Writers Guild strike ending, uh, we still need SAG. We need we need the actors to go yeah. back to work. So or else, there's going to be just as happening. There's going to be just as much incentive to to wrap up the SAG strike as there was now with the, now that the now that the there is a will. Uh, amongst, uh, I think all sides. Um, I think so. although SAG might be using this as leverage to, you know, get more of what they want, which I understand, but hopefully there'll be a great compromise and we will see people back to work within two weeks because look, we're going into the holidays and I think anybody in two weeks, they can, at least you've got half of October and half of November where we can work. I mean, they might even be able to wrap shooting on uh, Deadpool three in that time. Who knows?
0: Super fingers crossed. I mean, I want everything back to normal as soon as we can. And guys... That'll do it for today's installment of the John Campia Show podcast. Thank you so much for being here, and making this show part of your day. Big special thank you to our YouTube channel members for supporting us and for sending in those topics and questions for us to discuss. Thank you to everybody in the live chat who was joining us for this live stream that we did here today. Good to see all you guys there. And from everybody in the room, we got Ray Aura. See you later. Jonathan Voico. See ya. Writer, director, producer, Robert Meyer Burnett. I love Ray. My name's John Campia. <laughs> and until next time, my friends. Bye-bye.